Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. So real quick, we try to keep this conversational, less NPR and more just what it would be like at a bar if that's a thing we could do. Uh, okay. And I could use a Manhattan for sure. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters, And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, June 9th, in light of the protests and civic unrest unfolding across the country and in California after the murder of George Floyd, we'll be taking a look at structural racism in California's housing crisis. Almost all, frankly, the issues that we write about and think about in this space have some antecedent and some history of understanding how these policies came into place. And many of them, as we'll discuss on this podcast, have some element of racism to them. Pretty much every element of the California housing crisis has some type of disproportionate impact on black and brown Californians. And we have the perfect guest to talk about this with. Yeah, so we're speaking with Andre Perry. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution in D.C. and author of a new book called Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Properties in America's Black Cities. And the reason we specifically invited Andre on this podcast is some of his research really does get at implicit bias in valuing Black-owned properties. It's some of the best research I've seen in terms of how discrimination actually plays out in what people own in equity. And how racism, both historical and today, contributes to what he calls the devaluing of housing and property in in Black neighborhoods. First, Liam, do you want to give an update on the Gimme Shelter sweepstakes? Yeah, so I want to thank everybody. First of all, we had a really great response to my call out for subscribing to the Los Angeles Times and to donating to Cal Matters. The contest is over at this point. We have more than 25 people who subscribe to LA Times and a goodly number who donated to Cal Matters as well. So as you may recall, I'm giving out postcards and uh, two of those three prizes have been claimed. Uh, I've been reached out to the third person. They've not claimed it yet, but they're on their way and we'll be doing our drawing for the person who would be announcing the avocado of the year as it gets closer. So really thank you everyone again for all your support and for contributing. Yeah, it's been really heartening to see some of the emails and tweets that have showed you guys subscribing and donating so we can hopefully keep our jobs. We also, uh, just to give a heads up, later this week, knock on wood, we will be airing a new show from KCRW, one of the NPR stations in L.A., by the fabulous housing reporter Anna Scott. Liam, do you want to talk about what exactly that show is and why we're airing it? So the show is called Samaritans, and it takes a look at the universe surrounding one homeless person in Los Angeles and how the difficulties in connecting that person to the services that they need. So it's a deep look at kind of the web of homeless services through the story of uh, of one person in Los Angeles. I also want to recommend a previous podcast that Anna was part of called There Goes the Neighborhood, which I think that's the best look in terms of podcasts at gentrification pressures out of any. I've ever listened to. It's a co-production with WNYC with Saul Gonzalez as well. For Samaritans, we'll be airing probably one episode a week. And then the last episode will be a crossover podcast. We just recorded it earlier this week with Anna, myself, and Liam talking about what California is actually trying to do now to tackle homelessness. All right, let's go to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is... 
the avocado of the Fortnite. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And this avocado takes us to Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. Where do we go from there, Lamb? So you may have heard the story about how this tenant in a property in DuPont Circle in the D.C. area uh, opened their doors when police were rushing in on them with tear gas, etc., to let in these protesters into their house to kind of escape being arrested. You know, made national news, but there is a connection to California in that. Yes, a connection named Steve Maviglio, well-known here in the Capitol, a communication strategy specialist. Is that kind of the best way of describing him? I mean, spokesperson, you're using all the jargony terms. And also a previous guest on the podcast in his role as a spokesman for the campaign against Proposition 10 two years ago, the rent control measure. He was a spokesman on behalf of the landlord lobby. So it turns out Steve owns the house. Yeah. <laughs> so he, in fact, is the landlord in this case. And he got quoted in the Washington Post story and other media saying he was worried about his house getting burned down, that the tenant wasn't taking any risk and that his tenant was, in fact, not paying any rent anyway. And the quote was said among a few. Um, I don't mean to disparage the guy, Steve said, as he's being held up as this good Samaritan. But that also means paying your rent, which perhaps Steve should have known that might come off the wrong way considering the climate that we're currently in. So what happened next? So all sorts of outrage, particularly within the Sacramento political, cultural spheres. And it led later in this day to a a headline I literally could not stop laughing about for about a half an hour. And this was in the the Sac B. He suggested- You you were laughing for half an hour straight at this? I mean, maybe that's a little bit extreme, a little bit of an exaggeration, but a good five minutes, I couldn't stop. I think I even texted you. I was like, can you believe this? Yeah. So here's the headline uh, from the B, quote, he suggested his tenant wasn't a hero. Now the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op wants him out. That food co-op, kind of a pillar in the- uh... Sacramento political cultural sphere. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. It's kind of weird. Steve is a board member there and apparently is getting threatened with being kicked off the board because of these sorts of actions. The Washington Post story that broke this also reported that Maviglio said his life savings were tied up in this home. Which, you know, I haven't dug into how much exactly Biglio has been compensated for his time as a communication strategist in the Capitol. But if that is true, I would recommend kind of diversifying your assets. Anything else on, what do you want to call this, co-op gate? No, I think we could uh, close that gate right now. Let's move on to talking about structural racism in the California housing crisis. There's literally unfortunately, thousands of topics we can delve into, right? Whether it's the disproportionate number of African-Americans who are homeless, the disproportionate number of African-Americans who are low-income renters. Government policies, whether it's mortgage redlining, all these sorts of things that, you know- Active discrimination by landlords. Yeah. That structurally contributed and actively contributed to many of the disparities that that you just raised. We're going to focus on two here, mostly because we can't. All of those topics deserve their own show, to be honest. Yeah. And one you have written about extensively, which is Article 34. What is Article 34? 
this is an interesting way to show how these legacies of racism and discrimination are, are still embedded in the founding documents. Article 34 is a reference to the state of California's constitution. Mm -hmm. And in 1950, there was a public vote to put this provision into the constitution that requires voter approval before public housing is built in a community. What's racist about that? Racist for a lot of reasons. Racist in, in its the campaign to pass it, and it did pass you know narrowly in 1950. So the realtor industry, which was the predominant force behind this campaign, was explicitly racist in arguing for it, blaming minority pressure groups for pushing public housing and ads. At the same time, can't divorce this from what the housing market was at that time. So in 1950, the Realtors Code of Ethics included a provision barring agents from integrating neighborhoods on the basis of, quote, race or nationality, right? And so yeah. also housing discrimination was legal at the time. And so there are a lot of ways, you know, structurally, both from a government perspective and from sort of the private realtor and homeowner perspective, certain groups of people, Black, Latino, were prohibited from accessing certain neighborhoods. And so by making it harder to provide housing for folks who were poorer, you were prohibiting Black and brown people from living in those neighborhoods. Many of those neighborhoods, generation after generation, would have better education systems, would have more rapid appreciation in the equity of their homes. Mm-hmm. So there are low-income affordable housing complexes that are at least trying to go up around the state right now, including in some wealthier, whiter areas. But I don't remember having to report all that frequently about public referendums over them. What's the kind of current operational status of Article 34? So before we just jump into that Quickly, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the legacy of this in the immediate term and what that means for today. Now, we don't hear a lot about Article 34 in terms of, of its practical nature, but immediately we did. And this speaks to some of the legacy issues that we're just referring to. It absolutely, based on the data, stopped low-income housing construction in California for decades. This was tied up in the decision to abandon the building of public housing in L.A. Chavez Ravine neighborhood, where Dodger Stadium now is. Also weakened efforts to integrate suburban communities across the state. This issue even went to the U.S. Supreme Court, with the outcome being that allowing government policies nationwide that discriminate against poor people. So just some quick stats. So by the late 60s and about 20 years after this measure became part of the Constitution, voters across the state had turned down nearly half the public housing that had been proposed in Article 34 elections. And many agencies didn't even hold elections, fearing their plans would be rejected. I'm actually surprised it's that high. That means 50 percent actually got through. I'm, I'm actually somewhat shocked by that. But yeah, yeah continue. Yeah. So a federal HUD report at the time found that California had the nation's largest population of poor people, but ranked 22nd in the amount of housing available for them. And that the report blamed Article 34 for that disparity. And so ultimately, there was a legal challenge arguing that Article 34 violated the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause by denying poor people access to housing. That case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, where you know, justices affirmed its legality, its constitutionality, arguing that the provision was fine because it didn't single out a racial group. And the, the quote from the that opinion that's sort of relevant on this point, provisions for referendums demonstrate devotion to democracy, not to bias, discrimination or prejudice. But at the time when I wrote this story, and maybe we'll put it in the show notes. So this was from, you know, February of 2019 when I was writing this, 
I talked to a professor of history, University of Michigan, who had studied Article 34, and he believes that this case was one of the most important defeats in civil rights history in the last century and underappreciated how much it contributed to the stoppage of efforts to integrate communities across the country. You know, once uh, the Supreme Court acted as it did, the ruling had the effect of affirming state and local policies that were openly biased against poor people. This professor, Matthew Lasseter, University of Michigan, told me soon after that happened, President Nixon, who was president at the time, released a statement embracing the decision's logic, saying that the federal government would not impose economic integration in cities and counties. And again, this is around the same time, you know, folks like George Romney, Nixon's HUD director, was trying mm-hmm. for more integration in suburban communities and ultimately was prohibited from doing that. And so getting back to the racial elements of this, you know, when I talked to Lasseter, he was really critical of the ruling for overlooking those locations, particularly because it seemed to his mind to be a historical, right? Racial discrimination in housing was legal until 1968. In decades prior, federal government had guaranteed bank loans to developers of white-only subdivisions, promoted racially restrictive covenants. All of these policies altogether gave whites access to wealth through homeownership that others didn't have. So by blocking low-income housing, he argued, that had the consequence of keeping most non-whites from living in those areas as well. So I'll just read the quote he gave me. To say it was not about race is to say history doesn't matter, and there was this magic historical moment where all vestiges of a racialized housing market went away and everything started anew like the book of Genesis. So divorcing this from the legacy of explicit discrimination in housing policies divorces the impact that this provision of the Constitution has had on black and brown communities in the state. Yeah, and I think it's also an example of, even though kind of 21st century Californians might pride themselves on how progressive a state portend to be, that the history, especially when it comes to housing in California, and Article 34 is, is a good example of this, is often as disgraceful as other parts of the country. Yeah, and in fact, you know, doing research for this story, I was able to talk to uh, law professors at UC Berkeley who told me in their research that only California has a provision like this in its state constitution. Oh, really? Yes. There have been other, there were other efforts, other laws that were similar to this in other states in the country. But, uh, but it's not in the constitution. Not, a, not in the constitution, and B, yeah. many or most, uh, or if not all of those, have been repealed. So real quickly, what's the practical impact now? You know, like I said before, there are low-income affordable housing complexes that do go up around the state and you don't need a public vote for it. So there have been a number of ways that the courts over time have narrowed the effectiveness, if you will, of this provision. One is that the affordable housing projects that are funded by the low-income housing tax credit, which is, again, the predominant way right now that affordable housing is, is funded in the state or is produced in the state, those are considered private transactions and not public housing. They would not trigger Article 34 votes. That's number one. Number two, the, the courts have also ruled that a city can pass a measure that says we're going to allow for X number of thousands of units in a particular in our city. And that counts as an Article 34 vote for that city. So you don't have to have one for every single project. Those types of votes actually do run up against significant opposition quite frequently. Yes, but they've predominantly, at least in recent years, they've predominantly passed. And there's much more support, as we've talked about, for kind of housing in the abstract than housing next door to me, right? Um, And so it's certainly easier to pass a ballot measure that says 
hey, somewhere in the city or somewhere in this council district, there will be X number of public housing units or affordable housing units, rather than do you approve of this project right, right next door to you? So this is still in the California Constitution. What's being done about that? So the beginning of, of last year, the reason why we decided to write the story last year is there was an effort driven by L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti because he does believe that the city of L.A. at some point relatively soon will have to have another one of these votes. And he brought up the idea of repealing it entirely out of the Constitution. And so this would actually be the fourth time if there were be another vote, the fourth time that would happen. The previous three efforts all failed. As recently as the early 90s, As recently right? as the early 90s, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, from uh, Senator Ben Allen, L.A. area, and Senator Scott Wiener of San Francisco authored legislation that would put this on the ballot for 2020 and allow a public vote to repeal it. And is that going to happen? Seems pretty unlikely at this point. The measure, you know, passed the Senate. It's sitting in the Assembly now. And I don't think the issue is really whether the legislature would pass this, but rather whether someone would fund a campaign for it. The realtors who were behind the initial measure in 1950, by the early 90s, had come out against it and said that they were supportive of a repeal. They've said they certainly support this Allen Weiner measure now. But, you know, they're working on their own their own ballot measure now. And it's not as simple of a campaign as put it up there and people automatically vote for it. It mm-hmm. would take some explanation about sort of the legacy of this and what it means And in order to do that, to convince people that this is something that should be repealed, and that takes money and time and effort to put forward a campaign like that. When does the legislature have to decide whether they're going to put this on the ballot or not? I emailed with a a spokesperson for Senator Allen. They said usually these ballot measures have to go on by the end of June. They say that's not going to happen, but they're hoping to get it later on in terms of figuring out what the absolute drop dead date is to get something on the ballot. But, you know, once things go past June, it's hard to hard to see this advancing at this point. So we wanted to highlight Article 34 as kind of being one example of the sort of systemic policies, explicit policies that are discriminatory being embedded into structurally how the housing market and housing system in California works. And we could see that play out in a lot of these today. Yeah. You know, you look at some of the and you have some numbers kind of examining gaps in homeownership and wealth and all sorts of things, right? First off, I think a lot of people focus on the income gap, Yeah, both just in terms of the overall income income distribution, but also in terms of race and ethnicity. And I think that's obviously important, who's making more than others. But I think more important is actually the wealth gap, because it's one thing to be earning more. That actually may not matter as much if you own a ton of property or if your parents own a ton of property. I think wealth is a better measure of how people are doing economically than purely income. Problem is we don't have great wealth data. Yeah. That's the issue. There's a couple of national surveys that provide okay wealth data that you can kind of disaggregate by race and ethnicity, but then you can't really disaggregate it by geography further than that. What you can do is you can have homeownership as somewhat of a proxy because the primary vehicle for wealth accumulation for Americans is still their house, right? For the vast majority of Americans. And the legacy of some of the discriminatory policies that you referenced between black and white and brown and white is pretty stark. So just to put out some numbers here, this is from an Urban Institute analysis from a couple years back. Guess the city of any major metro with a significant black population that has the biggest homeownership gap 
between white and black um, in the country. And pretend you didn't see this. In, right, I was mean, lo- looking at the answer on the screen in front of me, but this answer, you know, is directly relevant to the conversations that we're having now. It's Minneapolis, yeah, where seventy-five percent of white residents are homeowners, and twenty-five percent of black residents are homeowners. And so I think when people talk about structural economic racism, this is part and parcel of it. It may be a coincidence that Minneapolis is at the very top of this list, but it's definitely not a coincidence that Minneapolis is among the cities with the biggest gap in black and white homeownership. But California is not immune from this. There's basically a 30 percentage point homeownership gap between blacks and whites in major California metro, so that's the Bay Area, Los Angeles. The actual biggest gap is in Stockton, like the greater Stockton area, which I found a little surprising. I'm wondering kind of how much of that is due to how much the foreclosure crisis kind of racked Stockton, right? Because black homeownership nationally historically peaked like 2006, right. 2007, right. and then black homeownership has not recovered at all, mm-hmm. despite the greater growth in the economy the last decade or so. In these metro areas in California, it's about a 30% black homeownership rate. Nationally, when we talk about wealth, median white wealth nationally is about 171 grand, median black wealth is $17,000. Mm-hmm. I wish people would focus more on the wealth gap than the income cap generally. I think that speaks more, especially to like the generational transmission of this disparity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Just a a few other numbers to throw out there quickly. Again, wealth data is frustratingly difficult to come by. Although yesterday, I mean, I should have probably been aware of this earlier, but I did come across a San Francisco Fed study that used some data actually from Duke some survey data to look at net worth that's really disaggregated by both geography and ethnicity and national origin. Yeah. It's not, unfortunately, across the entire U.S., but they do have basically six metro areas in the U.S. that they look at, okay. one of which is L.A. Mm-hmm. And th- the stats here are pretty stark in terms of the disparity as well. So in terms of median net worth, so this is not just assets, right? This is also if you have significant student loans or credit card debt or things of that nature that detract from your net worth. U.S. blacks, so they make a distinction here between recent African immigrants to the U.S. and native-born U.S. blacks. Native-born U.S. blacks in the LA metro area have a median net worth of $4,000. That's a huge, huge, huge disparity between the median net worth of whites, which is over 300 grand, and also Mm. the median net worth of Japanese households in the LA area, which is almost 600 grand, Mm -hmm. of Asian Indian households, which is 460 grand, of Chinese households, which is over 400 grand. Yeah. I wish there was more data like this where I could look at that in the Bay Area, right? Um, Or I could look over that for California writ large. So part of the reason I wanted Andre on the podcast specifically is because I think when we talk about the wealth gap or the home ownership gap, we often attribute it to, and rightly so, the legacy of these discriminatory policies in California and across the country, which is part and parcel of, of why the numbers are so stark. I think what we don't talk enough about is the current bias in the housing market that may be influencing these numbers. So instead of simply saying redlining happened, there is still implicit bias in the housing market itself that is reflected in current home values. The onus is not just on the sins of the past, 
right. on current sins and how people view property in a black neighborhood differently than property in a white neighborhood. Again, and we'll get into this in the interview, but the premise of some of Andre's research is you take a house in a majority black city, you compare it to an equivalent house, same neighborhood amenities, same quality of education, same type of house in a community where there's simply very, very, very few black people. And then you look at the disparity between the home values in those two communities, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they should be equivalent. Controlling for everything but race, they should be equivalent. And so here in California, that research found that black homes and black neighborhoods were undervalued 27% in the Bay Area. So that's about a $165,000 difference. In the LA area, it was a 17% disparity. That's about a yeah. 70 grand difference. And so that's a good introduction to Andre's research. And now let's, uh, let's talk to him. We're here with Andre Perry. He's a fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the new book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Properties in American Black Cities. Andre, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Why don't we start? Can you sort of broadly summarize the research in your book about how majority black neighborhoods are undervalued in the in the housing market? Yeah, you know, the anchor of the entire book really rests on the study that I did with my colleagues, John Rockwell of Gallup and David Harshbarger of Brookings, where we examined home prices in black majority cities. And we compared them to cities with a share of the black population was less than 1%. And we wanted to just have an apples-to-apples comparison. So we controlled for crime, education, walkability, number of restaurants, and all those fancy Zillow methods you see. (laughs) And what we found pretty much astounds that homes in Black neighborhoods are devalued by 23%, about 48,000 per home, accumulatively, that's $156 billion in what I say is, is lost equity. Now, mm-hmm. that $156 billion, as we know, should be going to people to send their kids to college or to start a business or to move to a better neighborhood. It, it should be used by municipalities to help fund education, policing, and infrastructure and other services. So it's a big loss, a big loss for Black communities. So why, why is that? Why is that the case? Clearly, we see that there's discrimination throughout the housing market. You you can't pinpoint one area, but clearly there's discrimination going on in appraisals. You know, I always use the anecdote that I heard from people in this regard, that when Black people are moving or selling their homes, they often turn down all the portraits or even change out the pictures in their homes to have pictures of white people in it because there's a belief that it will increase the sale value of the home. But you have appraisals, you have lending practices, you have real estate agent behavior in in the overall market as well. But there's not one area, but we clearly see that there's discrimination baked in to practices that come out of the wash of the research, because that 23% that we look at, that signal that there's discrimination that we've learned to live with, but we have not necessarily named 
in the market. You make explicit in your work that just simply laying out these racial disparities without acknowledging racism is not only counterproductive to people's understandings of these issues, but you argue actively harmful. Why is that? I work at a think tank and I've been a university researcher, uh, professor, and the overwhelming majority of the products that we produce around race or come in the form of racial disparity work, where we show the difference between, you know, for instance, black home ownership and white home ownership. And we almost always show the black people in sort of a lower position. And it's assumed that if we want parity, black people then need to catch up to white people's status on whatever metric we're measuring. Now, the problem with that is that when you're constantly pitting black people in a deficit position, they're almost seen as problems. And why that's problematic is because no one invests in problems. We invest in people to fix the problem. And that's why in things like education, education is littered with white saviors for that reason. We'll invest in white people to fix black kids. We don't invest in black neighborhoods. We don't invest in black assets. We will invest in a program to fix black people. We'll invest in property, but not black people. My goal is to say, hey, here are the, the strengths in black communities, but we have to recognize there are structures that actually devalue them. So in economic terms, they're underappreciated assets, meaning that if you invested in them, you're probably going to see a greater return because these structures are devaluing them. That's why I use the word devalue to show action, a negative action being done to these particular assets. If you don't ever show that structural racism there, you have little room but to blame black people for the problems. And that's part of this white supremacist myth that the condition of black cities and, and neighborhoods are a direct result of the black people in them. And it misses all the policy violence black people have been subjected to for generations. And so you just simply can't ignore redlining. You can't ignore housing covenants. You can't ignore the real estate agent behaviors that steer black people in one direction. That's part of the market. And if we're ever going to get to a decent sort of market and, and decent metrics, we've got to remove the drag of racism from the housing market. Reading the research and reading portions of your book, Andre, I was struck that the implication, so if I'm, um, let's say, a black homeowner in one of these neighborhoods where it's pretty clear that the only reason my home is being devalued is because of racism, is the implication I should simply be directly compensated for the lack of equity in my home? Like someone should just cut me a check because the only difference between my home and maybe the white-owned home in a different neighborhood is structural racism. A lot of the solutions that I recommend comes in this sort of general frame that we have to restore the value that's being extracted by racism. That loss of $156 billion accumulatively as I described, it's the loss of an ability to lift yourself up. Again, if you can't send your kids to college using the equity in your home, if you can't start a business using the equity in your home, you're essentially going to have limitations on your chances at the American dream. 
You know, I point mm-hmm. out how pervasive this number is. $156 billion would have funded more than 4 million startup businesses based on the average amount blacks use to start up businesses. It would have funded more than 8 million four-year degrees based on the average amount of a public education. It would have replaced the in Flint, Michigan, more than 3,000 times over, and it would have covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage. It's, I mean, it's an enormous number. And so if we ever want to see um, growth, we need to stimulate the economy by providing the resources that people can use to lift themselves up. Now, there's lots of federal policy right now around the coronavirus that shows, hey, if there's a break in the economy, we need to provide relief. And, you know, after a few short weeks of being socially distant, people said, hey, there's no way I can, my business will survive without this relief. There's no way I can maintain my home without this relief. Just imagine if you were socially distant for generations, (laughs) that at some point you need relief and stimulus in order to move forward. And that's what I call for. I tried my best to identify a metric or a target goal and $156 billion. I mean, it really pales in comparison to discriminatory impacts in black America. But it just goes to show you that if we had $150 billion that we could use to help get in the home, that we could use to help fix up the facade or fix a roof, or if we could use that money to help municipalities beautify the neighborhoods, then we could naturally uplift the values of homes because we can't just wave our magic policy wand and say, hey, let's correct the home prices. So we need to figure out ways to return values to Black Americans and others who have suffered because they simply live in a Black neighborhood. I want to push on the something you just raised a little bit, because if you're talking about homes and neighborhoods being devalued, then if some of these investments may raise their values to where they should be. But, you know, black home ownership rates are significantly lower. So you have a lot of renters in these and other communities as well that if values go up, as you just mentioned, that may lead to gentrification and displacement of residents in those communities. So how do you how should we address that or how should we think about that in this context? Investments made in place and not people always lead to gentrification. Mm-hmm. The goal is to restore mm-hmm. value to people. Mm-hmm. So, and just like, and we've been down this road before. We got out of the, the depression by direct investments to poor people in the form of low interest refinancing or housing loans that enable people to move and create new neighborhoods. The same thing is true today. Well, I should say that the problem with the New Deal legislation, much of it excluded black people from it. And so that's why we have many of the problems we have today. But the point is that we can invest in people so that they can then have a stake in the growth. No one's complaining when their home values increase when you own a home. (laughs) Or if you, nobody's crying on gentrification when you own a business in the area. So the goal is to get investment to people so that they can have a stake in whatever happens in that community. And so that's what I've been recommending, not necessarily sort of a la opportunity zones where 
that certainly encourage investments in place, but not necessarily in people. So the goal is direct investment towards the people who need upliftment. In most of the metro areas you looked at, there was the significant drop in home value for homes in majority black neighborhoods compared to homes in non-majority black neighborhoods with similar amenities. But there were a handful of metro areas where it was the reverse, where you saw homes in black majority areas actually had higher levels of equity than similar homes in non-black majority areas. I'm curious whether you dug into that at all and what you think kind of explains those variations. Well, there's some states that I was more thinking that it was caused by statistical noise. Like in Florida, retirement properties may have skewed the numbers some in a way that you saw a lot of Black neighborhoods showing appreciation in value. But there are some places, I have to say, like Nashville, So you look at the homes there, largely owned by older African-Americans and largely surrounded by people of average means. But in Nashville, you also have a black medical school, you have an HBCU, you have municipal governments that hire people. The relative poverty rate between black and white residents is shrinking. So Home values there suggest that something's going on good there. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say that a lot of the homeowners are older, so you're not seeing a younger crop. So eventually folks are probably going to sell, given that that their homes are appreciating at such a rate they'll probably sell high. And I have no problem with that. I have no Mm -hmm. problem with that. But there's other areas you scratch your head and go, what is this about? I did talk with a couple of journalists who said, hey, in Boston, some of the neighborhoods you see appreciation, they're surrounded by lower income whites. And that may have skewed the numbers some. But I do think there are places where you see authentic growth, but there are places where probably some statistical noise caused by some anomalies because the overarching direction is that black neighborhoods are devalued. So uh, Andre, I'm wondering what connections you see between y- your research and the current protests that are happening against police brutality and disproportionate treatment of blacks by law enforcement. Oh, man, yeah, there are direct connections. One, the municipalities that have severe devaluation also have limited resources to spend on municipalities. And many municipalities, the police forces crowd out any kind of money to actually improve the community. So this call for defunding the police, in my mind, has more to do with reprioritizing municipal budgets that make sense for economic advancement. You really do want more money put in schools. You want more money put into housing and social services. These are the things that increase economic mobility. Putting money into jail, that's not going to increase your economic ability. So I think, one, many of these places have limited resources because of the situation. They also have the same kind of attitudes that led to housing devaluation are baked in and into police departments. I say that the same attitudes that let a police officer put their knee, drive their knee into somebody's back, choking them out, are the same attitudes that employers have, real estate agents uh, agents have, banks have. And so 
all of these things are connected, but the reason why housing is important is you both know that housing is connected to so many other kinds of policies. Mm-hmm. You know, how we fund our schools are predicated on housing. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so they're all connected. All of this stuff revolves around housing. I mean, and I came through policy as an education expert, and I just got sick and tired of people saying, if we could just fix the schools, everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that has a lot to do with housing discrimination. You know, so everything's connected. Um, I actually want to quickly read a passage from the book and then just kind of have you expand on it, if that's okay. Go for it. Because I I think it's particularly relevant to this podcast and the listenership for this podcast. So so this is from early on in the book. Two percent of all architects are black. When whites are the default placemakers, the projects taken on will undoubtedly carry implicit biases. When it comes to community development in black majority neighborhoods, the person, firm, or group orchestrating the actual development can't be ambiguous. Black communities need reimagined spaces just like everyone else, but architects and planners must be deliberate about not imagining black majority spaces as places that are suitable for white middle-class residents. I'm wondering if you can expand on that and then also how that's a problem that can be solved. Yeah, you know, throughout the book, throughout New York Price, I really try to give people sense of the jargon that's out there that is driving change. Mm-hmm. And one of the, as, as you know, the big term, this word placemaking, and it just sort of describes development and transformation of places to serve local communities. Now, as I stated, many of the architects and planners that engage in these projects are white, and they have in their head what's good for this community it's a little bit of a verbal waffle that placemaking, you know, places already exist. You don't make them. They, they, <laughs> they already exist. What we should be asking is what do local residents authentically want and how can transformation help that community in terms of its economic mobility? Seldom do we do that. Yeah. It's always more about this is what I believe the community needs. And a lot of the book is autobiographical. I grew up in Pittsburgh where um, Google headquarters landed almost a decade ago. And since then, we've seen Black economic growth in that area. I grew up there with a formerly majority Black area where they landed. I went to school there. As soon as they landed, they or was proposed that they were coming, they started placemaking in a way that catered to Google, not necessarily the community. And huh. so that whole dynamic has to change. We have got to hold uh, Black people in high enough regard where they're considered in the transformation of place. Again, I want investment in Black neighborhoods, and I want investment in Black people. So I'm not against change. I want change. I, um, we need change. But it can't be in the image of white folks, especially if that image includes a negative view. So here in California, we've been in a pretty significant and contentious debate over single-family-only zoning and kind of its implications for a lot of the structural racism that you write about in your book. I'm curious to get your thoughts on single-family-only zoning. (laughs) Well, throughout history, we've used zoning policies to exclude black people from neighborhoods. That is clear. There's lots of documentation for it. But 
you know, when I'm in D.C. and I see these large high-rises being put up, no one is complaining, largely because it's mostly white people coming in. And it is clear, if we're going to solve this affordability issue, we've got to create more density. We need more units in a place. There's no question, but the sort of not, not in my backyard approach and the all the racial attitudes behind it is really limiting our cities from attracting talent and providing services in cities. In San Francisco, the Bay Area, it is hard for any teacher to actually live in the city and work in the city at the same time. I mean, you almost have to have someone in another industry um, making more money, um, a lot more money than your salary to cover basic housing costs. And so we've got to increase the amount of density. But even before you get there, we've got to learn that poverty is not a disease. Blackness is not a disease. You're going to be okay by building properties that really reflect what we look like as a public. The reason why our cities are so innovative and, and great is because you have different people of the different backgrounds working to solve big problems. We can't do that if we are constantly cutting off our ability to have people live in proximity to each other. So, you know, I've been a big fan of policies. I mean, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, they're actually er eradicating many of these single-family zoning laws. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing, but we need more cities to increase the amount of density just so that we can be able to uh, pragmatically be a democratic society, people working, learning, and living together. Can I ask you this? So, you know, this time, and I'm a white male in my mid-30s, but it does seem like the chorus for change does seem different this time for these particular protests. And you are seeing some, at least local elected officials, respond to it. Do you feel that way? Do you think we're going to see meaningful change, especially in the housing front? I do feel that there is changing views about racism and structural inequality. I think coronavirus actually helped us. We now really understand that if our neighbors are sick, we are then vulnerable. Mm. And so that is also true economically. Now, white people, a lot of white people who could benefit from a racist policy don't necessarily feel the pain as it manifested in death in the same way as the coronavirus has, but they understand, oh, all of America is throttled when we suppress black growth or when black uh, people are injured. So I think more people are aware. It's just that it's a lot harder to transform where people live and yeah. to transform the enrollments in colleges or employers. It's going to take a lot more long-term work and planning to change where we live than to change the other aspects of our lives. So it's no different. I think people are recognizing that. And I think you're going to see momentum in the housing front. But I do caution people in housing. It just takes longer right. um, because yeah. people just can't move like college enrollment of plan. So 
it's just going to take longer and it's going to um, we need more persistent work in that area. Uh, well, thank you again, Andre, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Andre. Hey, anytime. Bring me back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. Thank you so much again for all your subscriptions and donations. We really appreciate the support. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks.